Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1, once we get going, we'll be starting from verse 67, and you can find that on page 856. Uh, but a lot already happening in our service this morning. I love all the different aspects of it. Um, thank you to that instrumental band. Um, obviously, what I love most about that is the cross of generations and kids participating alongside adults, um, even as um, coming right after John and Vanessa investing and dedicating grant alongside adults, just the constant uh, ministry here that is cross-generational, uh, and it's just, um, it's just good stuff. So um, as we now stand December 15th, halfway through the Advent season, uh, it should be no surprise by now that it is moving at a frenetic pace like it always seems to do. And, you know, as a church, our kind of uh, calendar of events, if you will, for the most part, kind of wraps up after today in terms of Advent-related things, um, following uh, the congregational meeting today that is after the service. Um, really looking forward to that. Um, at that meeting, I'm going to be sharing some things that are going to be shifting and changing for us as a church going into 2020. Um, and I know everybody gets nervous when I say change, uh, but hopefully all rooted in good things, and then we'll also obviously you know, vote on some new elders coming on board and uh, the budget. But uh, looking forward to that. Uh, members expected to be there. Um, regular attenders encouraged to be there as well to just hear what's going on and what God has for us in this next season of ministry um, at Grace. Um, but then really after today, again, now we have this like 10-day stretch where we have tried to intentionally uh, clear the church calendar as best as we can. Um, and encourage you as the church to take advantage of this time leading up to Christmas Day. And if I could dare say it, even be intentional about slowing down in this 10-day stretch leading up to Christmas Day. And if I could put it this way, to Advent well. Um, and I know even saying that is laughable to you. Um, we know full well the church calendar is not your only calendar you have in your life. You have your work parties and your school parties and there's concerts and there's family gatherings and there's friends, dinners, and all those are very good things. I'm not saying to clear those things, um, but what is not good is that what happens kind of year-round, but especially in this in-between Thanksgiving and Christmas season is that what gets squeezed out more than anything is intentional time of reflection and slowing down to actually think. Can you imagine? To actually pray. And we are just kind of caught up in a culture that's just go, go, go all the time. And we're stressed out and we can't turn our brain off. And we never stop often to ask why we choose to go at such a frenetic pace. Kind of always, but especially now. And a fast pace will never bring peace. And no matter what we tell ourselves. And so just my encouragement, I want this to be encouragement to you just as we get started, um, to not become a victim to your calendar in these next 10 days. And what that, does that look like for you in your life? And to um, not allow yourself to be robbed of the joy and peace that this season is ironically supposed to bring about. And this Advent season, if you've been with us for the first two weeks, we're doing a deep dive on peace. The virtue that is seemingly wanted by all and yet experienced by none. So whatever camp you would place yourself in this morning, there's, you know, if you're religious or you're non-religious or you're uh, 
spiritual but not religious, right? Whatever kind of camp you would define yourself, there is a desire for peace amongst us all. A peace kind of out there, a peace uh, in our own hearts, and our own minds, and kind of that much we agree on, no matter kind of what or how you would define yourself. And just the sheer fact that everybody wants peace kind of proves the point that we don't control having peace ourselves. Like, we can't get it in the way that we want it for ourselves. Like, you cannot put it on your Christmas list. And you can't buy it for somebody else. Or if you're the kind of person who buys your own gifts and tells somebody else to wrap them, I'm not judging, you could just do better, okay? You can do better. Let it be a surprise. And yet we look around and our world is obsessed with finding the way of peace. If you really think about it, it's the foundational motivation under everything we do. Like, we go hard in this world because we want to experience peace. Like, we work like crazy, crazy hours, because we think in some way, in some day, it's going to bring us peace. Work hard now, go hard now, peace will come later. And pretty much down the line, everything we do, they have this foundational motivation. We want to experience peace. We work out like crazy because we want peace. We meditate because we want peace. We might self-medicate with any number of things, including drugs and alcohol, because we want peace. We think that is what will give it to us. We might study nonstop because we think it's going to bring peace. We bounce from relationship to relationship to relationship because we think we're going to look and find peace. We fill in the blank for yourself because we think it's going to bring peace. And yet, no matter how hard we go, we find over and over again it's just not hard enough. And we're always just like a little bit short in our own minds. We always just need to go a little bit further, a little bit more, which is no wonder why when you kind of boil the scriptures down, and I've said this in the first couple weeks, that the restoration of peace is really the story of the Bible. Right? If the foundational motivation of our lives is to find peace, the foundational motivation and kind of bedrock of the Bible is to bring glory to God and to restore peace in the world. And from cover to cover, that's the story. And the key to understanding that story all throughout is Christ, the one through whom God is redeeming and restoring a fallen world to this place of shalom, this place of peace. And again, the first two weeks, if you were here, we were camped out in the Old Testament, kind of tracing this theme through. And now we get to Luke chapter 1. And Luke chapter 1 is probably the most well-traveled Christmas passage in the Bible. It is familiar ground for people who are in church in the month of December. But if you're not familiar with the Christmas story in Luke, what if I told you that Luke 1 begins in darkness And then it ends, 80 verses later, with the revelation of the way of peace. Wouldn't you be intrigued to travel that path? And in doing so, we're actually going to zero in on probably the most overlooked passage in the familiar story of Luke chapter 1. One of the most overlooked stories in the Christmas story. It's the prophecy of Zechariah. Um, Some translations that maybe you grew up with call it Zechariah's song. And so we're going to read Luke 1, verses 67 through 80. And in the theme of it being considered kind of a song of Zechariah, we're going to read it together. 
not sing it. I won't put you through that pain. But I'm going to ask, and I don't do this often, but if we could just stand. We've been sitting a little while. Just stand. The words are going to be on the screen, or you can follow in your own Bible. I'm going to try and go at a reasonable pace. But let's all read together Luke 1, 67 through 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. I would buy that CD if I'm just saying. Have a seat. The surprise of Luke's so-called Christmas story is that it's not just one birth narrative that he gives, but two. And as we have read and we'll see, this song is ultimately pointing to Jesus, but it's primarily about a baby that will be born several months before Jesus, a baby named John. And his father, Zechariah, uh, we learned some things from him earlier in Luke 1. If you have time today, this week, I encourage you to read all of Luke 1, because Luke gives us some kind of important details about Zechariah leading up to this song. First, we learn that he is a priest in Israel. And Luke is very careful to tell us he and his wife, Elizabeth, are righteous. They are walking blamelessly before the Lord. So that's the picture in our mind. This is not a bad priest. This is not a Pharisee, which we'll meet later in the book of Luke. This is not a hypocritical priest. This is a good, faithful, blameless priest. And then Luke shares he and his wife's deepest source of pain. Verse 7 of Luke 1, But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. This is a bit of an aside from the sermon, but I think it's important. Luke is very, again, careful to note that the reason they are childless, hear me, is not because they are unrighteous. Elizabeth was not to blame 
for her barrenness. If you slow down and think about it, think about how many times she must have wondered along that journey if she was to blame, if God was punishing her for maybe an unknown reason or what was, was withholding this from them because it was their fault. I think this is true today, but especially in the first century, a time when children and the passing along of a namesake and the generation and inheritance was so vital. Consider the pain that they felt when people asked them when they're going to have children. Consider the answers from a newlywed Elizabeth that went from we will. To we're trying. To we can't. And then finally to we won't. And Luke says in the midst of this disappointment and sadness, they walked righteously before the Lord. That their suffering was not a result of their sin. It was a result of a fallen world. And, and in this way, he lines up Zechariah and Elizabeth with these pretty big characters in the Bible. The, the language even. He lines them up with Job. Do you notice that? How does Job explained by God? He says he is a righteous man walking blamelessly. And it foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ himself, who this story of all Luke is going to kind of build up to. At the end of Luke, you're going to kind of look at the beginning of Luke in a different way. This story of Christ himself, who will suffer much, more than anybody in human history, despite being completely innocent and sinless. And so I think about our church, and I think about those who experience long-term chronic suffering physically and emotionally, and, and especially couples. And there are several in our church family and community who are experiencing the pain of infertility. To just know from Luke chapter 1, the word of God, divinely inspired, God is not punishing you. And you walking in faithful obedience in the midst of suffering brings glory to God in a way that not only shows your understanding of the gospel, but it manifests God in your life that many of us will never be able to do or experience on that level. And to keep walking. Well, Zechariah was providentially chosen to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple to make a sacrifice, which means he is by himself in this part of the temple making a sacrifice, and, and an angel appears to him. And we are so familiar with the story at this point that this tends to not really hit us in the way that I think it should, but this is the first time in 400 years that God speaks to his people directly. Let's put that in perspective. It has been 400 years since the Mayflower ship landed upon Plymouth Rock in 1619. Think about what has happened in this country since 1619. It's been that long 
Not since the days of Malachi, the the final prophet in the Old Testament, before um, things entered into a time of darkness, into a time of silence from God for 400 years. Can you understand now why Zechariah's initial response is fear and a little bit of doubt? Like it's a shock to his system, and yet the angel says, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to bring you good news. He and his wife will have a son. It's this birth announcement, but it's not about Jesus, but rather the one that will come before Jesus, the one who will prepare a way, and his name shall be John. Now, understandably, Zechariah, he's got some questions. Surely, again, the shock of just hearing from God is powerful enough, but then he's hung up on this detail. He and Elizabeth, not spring chickens anymore. And then he provides men, listen closely, transcendent wisdom for all men in all times. Zechariah says, I'm old and my wife is advanced in years. (laughs) He's a wise priest and that is just a Holy Spirit inspired gift for you. And honestly, probably, in light of what I was saying earlier, probably protecting he and his wife emotionally a little bit. If you think about the heartache, think about that first conversation with Elizabeth, how nervous he was about that. They've been through this road. It seems like they've come to terms with the fact it's not going to happen. Kind of rip that scab back open. Is that right? I think, again, just being a good husband is going, wait a minute. I'm not sure I want to go down this path again. And from there, his doubt does lead to the angel rendering him silent and and makes him mute for his disbelief. And so he comes out of the temple, and everyone's confused because he's coming out of the temple. He's literally speechless. And after this, we find he's obedient to the message. And Elizabeth conceives, just like the angel foretold, and she gives birth to a son And they go to circumcise this child on the eighth day, and everyone is wondering at this kind of really kind of miracle baby, this momentous event, what will his name be? And the assumption is that its name will be named after daddy. We got Zechariah Jr. He's carrying the inheritance forward. He's got a future as a priest. And Elizabeth says, no, his name will be John. And the friends and relatives are like, that's a nice name. John. And they're like, like have, you, have you talked to Zechariah about this? I know he hasn't talked, we don't know why, for the last nine months. What does Zechariah say? And he asks for a tablet. And he writes on it, his name will be John. And with that, his tongue is loosed. He is able to speak once again. And that, that is the backdrop to him now singing this song, or prophesying this passage inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, again, I think that gives it a little bit more weight. And I want to spend just the rest of our time unpacking this prophetic word that we all read together. And if I had to sum it up in a sentence, it's pretty simple. Look at what God has done, and look at what God will do. First, verses 67 through 75 sum up the phrase, look at what God has done. And it's, again, just an important marker for us that the Christmas story does not begin with Luke chapter 1. 
It is the turning point, the fulfillment of all of human history. And I think the tragedy of it is that when we think about the Christmas story, everything just gets isolated from all that has come before it, which is why we spent the first two weeks in the Old Testament. And which is why I think in our day, the Christmas story is increasingly being seen as a kind of religious fairy tale that everyone's willing to buy into for these six weeks or so between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And in that way, it kind of, might not say it, but they kind of put it on par with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman, just like a delightful little telling of a tale that we're just kind of willing to buy into. It's this baby who was born in a manger. There was cows looking on. It was a starry night. And I think many people who come to church only around Christmas time have probably heard dozens and dozens of sermons on these characters, but have never heard anything from the Old Testament. Which is why many of them won't be back until next Christmas to hear the same stories again because it really doesn't mean much to them. You know what I don't think about in February? Rudolph. (laughs) You know what Canaan's not talking about in July? Frosty. And we're kind of pigeonholing the Christmas story into this thing. It is, let's buy in. It's great. It's the season. January hits? Okay, let's move on. I'll be back next year. But the reality is that all of Scripture is understood through the interpretive lens of the birth and the death of Jesus Christ. And not only all of Scripture, but all of human history. As I heard a pastor named Alistair Begg say once, you cannot understand the Old Testament without Christ. And you cannot understand Christ without the Old Testament. It's a great phrase, and he has a Scottish accent, which makes it like ten times more powerful. But the Old Testament is a story in search of an ending. So the Old Testament should always be read in light of Jesus Christ. And this, this, this f- song, this prophecy by Zechariah is the best representation of this fact. That it is this bridge between what has God done and what God will do. And this priest stands at the brink of human history where the supernatural meets the natural. That Jesus is not a new plan. He's not the start of a new truth or a new religion. He's the fulfillment of the first promise God ever made to man. And we saw it two weeks ago. That the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent and restore the peace that was lost in the garden. And in this one song, in just a few verses, he's very effective and concise, he gives you the major points of the Old Testament. He starts in verse 67. Our God is a God who visits and redeems his people. And and that language is hearkening back to the Exodus when God heard the cries of his people in Egypt and raised up a prophet to go take them out. They were in slavery in Egypt for how long? 430 years. Almost identical amount of time to now when God breaks his silence to Zechariah to promise of this coming king in the New Testament. Jesus, in this way, is the new and better Moses. Salvation, through faith, is the new and better Exodus. And I'm giving you a little primer now because, Lord willing, starting in January, we're going to be preaching through the book of Exodus in 2020. And he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. 
So now he is hearkening back to King David, who delivered his people from the hands of the Philistines. You guys know that story well, David and Goliath. And he united the tribes of Israel, and he established a kingdom. And, and in 2019, um, the horn of salvation probably doesn't mean much to us. But the, in the Old Testament, throughout, the horn is always a sign of strength, of God's strength. There's an instrument, a horn that was used in battle, but that's not even talking about that horn. It's talking the literal horn of an ox that shows the strength of God. I probably will never fully understand what the original readers of the Old Testament were viewing that as, but I got a little insight into the strength of the horn this past summer when we were visiting Rochelle's family in Wisconsin. Her father, they live on about 100 um, acres, her father has six to eight Scottish Highlander cows. Um, If you know what I'm talking about, you can Google it, they're long fur, long horns, and they're like, they're beasts, man. And... Grandpa Orland brings Caden and I out on a tractor, and we're riding on a flatbed to go feed them a bale of hay. And these bales of hay are tightly packed. They are solid. You couldn't even, like, pull it out if you tried. And we, we drive into the middle of the field where the cows are all far off, and we just drop it there and then start to drive away because you cannot get too close to these cows. And the one cow, kind of the bull, leader of the pack, sees it, I'm sure this is just a routine they do every day, and he starts trotting over ahead of the rest. And this trot becomes a sprint. And we're driving away like two miles an hour (laughs) on this tractor, and I'm just like watching it like, and he gets close to this bale of hay. I can't even like explain it. And he bends down with his horn, and it seems like in one fluid motion, just flings this thing in the air, and it just explodes. And the, hail, the, the, the bale of hay just kind of spreads around, and the rest of the cows come around, and they start eating. And it was just this single just movement of just horn into the bale of hay, which I'm like lugging off the thing, and it just like it was a piece of paper. Caden's watching, and he's like, whoa, did you see that? And I'm sitting here like, are you kidding me? Like Grandpa Orland smiling, humming on the tractor. I'm like, can we go a little faster? Like we're not that far from this thing. I will not be able to keep my kid alive in this. It's the horn of salvation. It's strength that boggles the mind. And God raises up a horn of salvation that will save Israel from their enemies. And he did all those things, Zechariah goes on in his songs, to remember his holy covenant that he swore to our father Abraham that we might be delivered from our enemies and rescued and redeemed. And so in just a few verses, Zechariah brings us through Moses and David and Abraham, these major people in the Old Testament whom God makes a series of covenants with to be their God, to rescue his people so that we might serve him, that we might pursue holiness and righteousness because anywhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, when God saves He saves his people in order that they might glorify and worship him. They free them to worship him. That's why God saves. And so Zechariah is like, look at what God has done. He has visited and redeemed his people. And then he shifts in verse 76 to what God will do. I just want to read that again. You don't have to stand this time. 
76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You can almost get a visual of Zechariah standing in this place. He looks behind him and he sees all that God has done. And then he pivots and he looks ahead of him to all that God will do. And he will use this son of his to help prepare the way. That John will be the final prophet that comes before the Messiah comes. He's the final forerunner. The the one who's making things ready, stirring things up, cultivating the ground for his arrival. And he will be the final one, if you think about it, to prophesy of the Messiah without actually knowing who Jesus is. In all of its entirety. And we know, if we were to keep reading through the Gospels, how the story goes. John was immensely popular, despite being a little bit different. He was not what we would call normal today, which is a weird thing to call people anyway. But he dressed different. He ate different. He was out there, literally, figuratively. But his message was so compelling that it drew vast amounts of crowds into the wilderness. And the message was one of repentance and forgiveness. That he was called to give, Zechariah says, the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And in this way, John is preaching the kind of sermons we typically don't hear at Advent. He's not trying to win people over by telling them how much better their lives will be if they just believe. He's not leading out with, you will get fulfillment, and you will get purpose, and you will get meaning if you just believe in this message. John is not much of a salesman trying to give a sales pitch about the Messiah. His aim in his preaching, almost the opposite is true, that he did not want people to feel good about themselves and then try and slide in the good news as a gift that they can open alongside all the other gifts they're trying to get in life. In this way, John does something far better, far more meaningful. He spoke to the brokenness that is within this world that we all feel. He spoke to the brokenness that is within our own hearts because of the fracturing of shalom that comes with sin. John loved people so much that he cared enough about them to talk to them about their need for forgiveness. And to try and offer people just meaning and fulfillment without the message of forgiveness is like giving a starving person a fork and spoon but no food. John did not devote his life to make good people even better. He longed to see dead people come alive in faith. And this hits me, especially I think it should hit all of us on a certain level, that if we're not careful, we try and make the gospel so palpable that we cut off the thing people need most in order to experience salvation, repentance, 
and faith to receive the forgiveness of sins. And, and, and the desire for, for meaning and for fulfillment and to kind of put that bait out there, it will never get people to Jesus. But the desire for Jesus, putting Jesus out there, will get people to meaning and fulfillment. And you will not have a desire for Jesus unless God reveals your need for him. Until he reveals what we saw last week, that we are dead in sin, a valley of dry bones, and in need of a savior. And until we get to that point, it doesn't matter a sermon like this, a sermon by Billy Graham, a sermon by the best preacher you can think. No sermon will get you there until God reveals that to you because food does not look as good when you're not hungry. But when you receive the grace to hunger for Christ, this is a feast, man. Like when you see that this baby born is not just a fun old tale, the cows and the stars, but it's the supernatural breaking into the natural. When you see it as the Father's plan from the beginning, in which the Son executes and the Spirit applies, the lights go on. And this is what we want for all people. We don't want you just to have forks and spoons. We want you to have the bread of life in front of you. And, and so this John, he, he sees his life like all followers of Christ should see our lives. He sees his own life's meaning in relation to Jesus Christ. Which is why when we read and John starts getting popular and the crowds start getting coming and wanting to listen to him, that had to feel pretty good, right? Like, oh, I, might, I, might, I must be pretty good at this. And yet, he's, what... That's not how he, the road he goes down. What does he say? He's very careful. He goes, whoa, wait, hold on. There's one that is mightier than I that is coming. And then he'll go on to say, um, he, meaning the Messiah, he must increase, I must decrease. And so for those of us in this room who have been saved by God's grace, who would consider yourself a believer, a good diagnostic question to reflect upon, maybe even these next 10 days, is do I define my life in relation to Jesus Christ. And actually dwell on that. Do I draw people to myself to make much of me? Do I want people to be drawn in to glorify me? Do I orient my words and my actions and, my, and, and the way I spend my time and who I spend my time with to make much of me? Or do I want to draw people to make much of him? Do I want people to glorify him? Do I want people to see me but then, but then look to him? My guess is nobody would say that we're not trying to do that. But I wonder if our lives affirm the words that we would say. It makes me think of a song that I've heard a little bit on the radio recently. I don't know if it's a new song. I just started hearing it recently. It's called Nobody by Casting Crowns. Have you heard this song? Here's the chorus. Because I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Ever since you rescued me, you gave my heart a song to sing. I'm living for the world to see nobody but Jesus. John shows that the way of peace that everybody is looking for is not something that can be worked for and earned it's something that can only be revealed and received. 
Because verse 78, of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Just like nobody in this room worked to make the sun rise this morning, so we do not earn or deserve the sending of the true son, Jesus Christ. And the way of peace tells us that God does not give us what we deserve, but in fact, he gives us what we don't deserve. This is mercy and grace, the twin gifts that we can receive and not buy. And I'll close with this. I saw a video this past week by a pastor named David Platt. Many of you are familiar with him. He pastors a church down in Virginia. We actually have a couple people visiting up this morning from his church. And David Platt said he was in the undisclosed country, um, sitting outside a temple, a religious temple, in which three other men of all different religions were talking. And they were talking about how their, while the religions um, are, are, are different on the surface, they're all fundamentally the same. Now, all the religions are really going for the same thing, they just differ on the details. And in this way, it struck Platt, that this is actually a very common notion in America. All religion, good or bad, is kind of the same. We're all just kind of doing the same thing, just that the details look different. But we're all going the same place. And so uh, Platt was just listening, and then he sought to clarify, and he, he said this to the group. He said, it seems to me like you're saying that you picture God at the top of a mountain, and we are all at the bottom of this mountain, and I might take this trail up, and you might go that way up, and this other person will go up a third tra uh, trail. But at the end of the day, we all get to the same place. And the guys look back at him, and we're like, that's actually, that's good. That sounds exactly right. That's like a great illustration to sum up kind of what we're all feeling and talking about. And to this, Platt says, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain did not wait for us to climb up to get to him? but he actually came down to where we are. He said, this is the difference. The story of the Bible tells us of a God who does not leave us alone to come find him, but a God who made himself known and has shown us the way through Jesus. And I wonder for those in here this morning who have not yet explicitly made a decision to follow Jesus, that in his word, that you might see that he's not waiting for you to figure out the way to him, but that he has come to you. And this is not something you need to work for or earn for or live a certain way or talk a certain way, but to receive what has been revealed. And my encouragement for you this morning, if you hear his voice, take him at his word and repent and believe and receive the forgiveness of sins. And God is calling and freeing you to pursue holiness. He's freeing you to worship, to bring glory to his name. This is why he sent his son. This is why Zechariah sings a song about his son, revealing the way of the son who comes to us to worship him, to orient our lives around him, to be a bright witness for this world as a church, for our joy and for his glory. He has indeed guided our feet into the way of peace and gives us the opportunity to have a growing relationship with him. Let's pray.